Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. An Erio's original. I was born with a special gift. The ability to mentally transform any situation into the worst-case scenario in my own brain. My therapist calls my gift catastrophizing. And that's why I'm uniquely qualified to scrutinize and analyze history's greatest disasters and find out who's to blame. They say history repeats itself. Not on my watch. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and I am The Alarmist. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into The Alarmist, a comedy podcast where we talk about history's greatest tragedies and figure out who's to blame. Today we're going to be talking about the Astor Place Riot. Now, this is an episode where our knowledge of the Irish potato famine is actually going to come into play. So as we go on in the show and and we do more and more episodes, we're going to see a lot of overlap. And that is something that a nerd like me gets very excited about. Let's get started. The Astor Place Riot, also referred to as the Shakespeare Riot, was a violent civic disturbment that occurred May 10, 1849, at the now-demolished Astor Place Opera House. It was started by a heated rivalry between two well-known actors of the time, but it was intensified by brewing tensions between New York's upper class and its working class. In 1849, New York City was being transformed by immigration. 
Irish immigrants fleeing the Irish potato famine consisted of one quarter of the city's population. And as the city grew, many locations in downtown Manhattan were stamped as seedy. The Bowery was seen as the main street for the lower classes. It ran from downtown all the way to Astor Place, where the Astor Place Opera House that catered to upper-class theater-goers was located. The Bowery was a motley stew of German, Irish, Jewish, Black, Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, French, Mexican, and Chinese immigrants, and the Bowery flaunted the most squalid of New York City's groggeries, tattoo parlors, flop houses, brothels, fortune-telling salons, theaters of low ranking, pawn shops, and rigged auctions. It had a reputation as the last stop on the way down. down. In the book Low Life, Luke Santi describes the Republic of the Bowery as a powder keg of pre-political class rage that required only a slim excuse to go off. And a feud between two actors was a good enough excuse as any. On May 7, 1849, three days before the riot, the well-known British actor William Charles McGreedy went on stage in a performance of Macbeth at the Astor Opera House. Theater's entertainment was extremely popular at the time, and theatergoers would often rally behind their favorite actors. The audience consisted primarily of working-class New Yorkers that were not fans of McGreedy's British background and acting style, which was considered subdued and genteel. Is this a dagger which I see before me? The handle toward my hand? Come, let me clutch thee. I have thee not, and yet I see thee still. Art thou not fatal vision, sensible to feeling as to sight? Or art thou but a dagger of the mind, a false creation proceeding from the heat-oppressed brain? They hissed at him, booed, taunted him. They threw rotten eggs, potatoes, lemons, apples, and copper coins at him on stage. It escalated to the point that a red plush theater chair was thrown into the orchestra from the second tier by an audience member. McCready left the stage halfway through the production and escaped out the back door. He threatened to catch the next ship back to England. After the affront, New York's upper class decided that this type of behavior by the working class would not be tolerated. 47 of New York's most prominent citizens, including Herman Melville and Washington Irving, wrote a letter that was published in the newspaper, urging McCready to return to the stage and perform Macbeth on May 10th. They promised order and protection. McCready accepted. The Bowerites, on the other hand, saw this public address as a challenge. The police chief informed the mayor that the city lacked the force to subdue a riot. The mayor, worried about the rising tensions, enlisted the 7th Regiment of the state's militia. The Bowerites mobilized. They bought tickets to the performances and distributed flyers calling workmen to join them in, quote, expressing their opinions the night of the performance. On the night of the show, when anti-McCready audience members disrupted the performance, they were arrested by police. Outside the theater, the crowd reached over 10,000 people. They began throwing stones through the windows. The police were quickly overwhelmed and called upon the militia. 
Shots were fired, at first in the air, and then into the crowd. In the end, 18 lay dead, mostly bystanders. More than 112 were wounded or injured, and 177 were arrested. Fun Facts, a.k.a. Death Stats The week after the riot, four more of the wounded died, bringing the total number of people killed to 22. During the chaos, McCready was rushed away from the building in disguise. He later fled to Boston and departed back to England. This was the largest number of civilian casualties due to military action in the United States since the American Revolutionary War. Well, today, as always, we have with us producer Amanda Lund. I'm here and ready to produce. And fact checker Chris Smith. Here we go. Let's do another episode with, and I'm here. And also joining us is a very special returning guest, Jacqueline Landgraf. Good Plague Tuesday to all. You guys might remember Jacqueline from the Irish Potato Famine. Jacqueline has also taught acting at the Atlantic Theater Company for perhaps over 10 years at this point. So uh, we have a, a a rare treat to have a theater expert. I think we might have four theater majors in the house right now. Yes, an overabundance. <laughs> no one needs four theater majors for anything. <laughs> at all. No. You would definitely need four theater majors for, say, a production of Waiting for Godot. That's a good point, Chris. Yeah. So, <laughs> Jacqueline, maybe you can speak to the, uh, the Scottish curse? Sure. Um, my understanding is that Shakespeare wrote the play Macbeth for King James, who was real afraid of witches. He had a real thing with witchcraft, and people say that it began because of the like very macabre execution of his mother, Mary, Queen of Scots. So he was really he had a vendetta against the witches. So a lot of playwrights at the time, you know, to appease the king, were writing about witches and how we should off them. And so Shakespeare wrote the Scottish play, Macbeth, and he did a lot of research, apparently, for his writing and for the witches' brew incantations. Like, those were allegedly uh, real witch incantations. And the lore is that the witches around the Globe Theatre <laughs> in London were angry that he was, you know, appropriating real witchcraft in the play and they cursed the play Macbeth and that basically every production ever since has been cursed. And I guess like part of the lore is that the very first production for King James, um, the actor playing Lady Macbeth, who was a man because only men were in the play, died suddenly. <clears throat> and so Shakespeare himself had to understudy the role of Lady Macbeth. And then through that play, that production that Shakespeare was starring in, they accidentally used real daggers instead of prop daggers. And so one night in performance killed the actor playing King Duncan. Wow. This is <laughs> thrilling news. <laughs> <laughs> and like it shit's gone down ever since. Wow. Yeah. That's Just so like, crazy. I did not know that. 
I just knew that you couldn't use the word if you were uh, during a performance uh, of the play. Uh, yeah, I mean, and if you use it, like you have to, you know, superstition wise, you have to go do a thing. You have to go outside of the theater and turn three times and spit and swear and then knock at the theater door and somebody has to let you back in. Okay, great. So I think the plan is that we can use the word during this podcast, but afterwards, all of us will go outside, turn around three times and spit. Yeah, what we always do after we record the alarmist. (laughs) Yeah. So let's start by putting what uh, one of the big players uh, of this terrible tragedy up on the board, and that is Edwin Forrest. Now, Edwin Forrest was the actor. Uh, it, It wasn't McCready. That's the actor who was actually on stage. Edwin was the one that he had the feud with. And according to the Bowery Boys podcast, which I highly recommend, um, they they do an episode on the Astor Place riots. Edwin was a Philadelphia-born actor who got a big break while experimenting with nitrous oxide, a.k.a. laughing (laughs) gas. Apparently, while he was using it, he busted into a Richard III monologue and was encouraged (laughs) to audition for a uh, a play at the Walnut Street Theater. So uh, then he moved, he later moved out west and then eventually made his way to New York City to pursue acting shortly thereafter. So that those were the origins of Forrest. Huh. Now, the, sa- the saga began several years earlier. This is 1845, the feud. And this is according to Lit Hub. Uh, website, uh, when the volatile Philadelphia-born star Edwin Forrest was on tour at, uh, to the UK, stung by a poor review in London, the spectator yawned that his Othello was, quote, affected, and said that his, quote, killing of Desdemona was a cold-blooded butchery. Uh, Forrest became paranoid that his great rival, the eminent English actor William McCready, was orchestrating a campaign against him. The following March, Forrest began, uh, bought a ticket for McCready's Hamilton in Edinburgh. Hamlet. Uh, sorry, sorry, <laughs> Hamilton. <laughs> wow, they were really ahead of their time. <laughs> Hamlet in Edinburgh. Uh, just as the play within the play scene began, Forrest hissed loudly and publicly. The affair became a scandal, particularly when Forrest sent a letter to the London Times pouring scorn in McCready's, quote, fancy dance of a Dane. Back in the U.S., <laughs> Forrest, narcissistic even by the standards of most actors, exulted that he had struck a blow against anti-American prejudice. So a lot to unpack between these two actors. Fancy dance of a Dane. Edwin was hurt. He kind of like placed all of his anger and, uh, I don't know, a a therapist would probably have a field day with um, this scenario, but all of his anger and shame into this one guy. He was everything that he was not. More refined, more polished. And in my mind, um, maybe we can just compare them to famous actors of today, because I was thinking maybe (laughs) Edwin is like a Shia LaBeouf type. <laughs> yeah, and then I, I thought of him like as like drunk Colin. First. Oh yes, I love that. <laughs> well, that's and fun. then I think of McCready as like 
Professor Lockhart in Harry Potter as played by Kenneth Branagh. Mm. I think that's mm. really great. Yeah. Mm. I was also thinking you could go Cumber Cumberbatch. I do think, like, I don't know, like, the, the feud does remind me of kind of the general separation of of acting taste, like, from Britain to America overall. You know, like, this is years before Stanislavski came on board. And then, like, in America, we started getting, like, the kind of angry young man actor, like, Brando and James Dean and all that kind of, bomb, you know, kind of emotional bombast. But I think that was always kind of always in vogue that was what kind of turned americans on was it was like just more like scrappy and emotional and wild and i think in london at the time it was still very i think the genteelness was like gestural and um like you did this hand gesture for a certain emotional quality and everybody understood that and I just loved reading about the night of the, I did not love reading about the night of the riots, but I, mm-hmm. I I guess it became so loud in the theater because the Bowery boys were like overturning the theater and cre- creating such a ruckus that nobody could hear the actors. And so both nights they just finished the entire play in pantomime. Oh my gosh. Wow. That, you know, this is the perfect uh, time to talk about these Bowery boys and talk about what it meant to riot in those days. So according to Professor McConaughey, he's the guy who wrote the Oxford Encyclopedia of Theater and Performance Entry on the Riots. Ooh la la. So he says, quote, riots in those days, especially in theater, were planned ahead of time, and they were usually intended to oppose a specific policy at the theater, not always a rival actor, sometimes a stage manager, or even a piece of music that might have been played and ruffled the patriotic feathers in the audience. People would break up some furniture, throw things at the stage, and then retire, go home to their dinners, and the theater manager would take care of the problem and life would go on. (laughs) He goes on. Quote, forest supporters, who were a lot of Bowery boys and Tammany Hall politicians, gathered their forces outside the hated Astor Place Opera House, and they used McGreedy's performance as a means of protesting what they took to be elitist privileges in New York City. And this was an opera house that had been built two years before, and they had uh, special kid gloves dress code. They had higher prices. And so a lot of the rest of the population couldn't get into the opera house. So McCready became a symbol of English oppression, of aristocratic privilege, of all the things that the Bowery boys had learned to hate. Now, there you go. let's talk about the Bowery boys. They came from all walks of life during the 19th century um, when they were most prominent. And uh, this is according to allthingsinteresting.com. Perhaps <laughs> the most important thing that they were was New Yorkers. Specifically, they were native New Yorkers born and raised. And as far as they were concerned, people who didn't meet those criteria were not worth associating with. And now this is according to BBC. The Barry boys were known as a nativist gang. They were anti-Catholic and anti-Irish. They staked out ground on the Bowery just north of Five Points along with other gangs, such as the American Guards, O'Connell Guards, and the True Blue Americans. The Bowery boys also made a name for themselves in the world of theater. So once they had become regular audience members, the actors and directors began putting on plays about the Bowery boys, which delighted them to no end. So the Bowery Theater was where 
they hung out. I think people look to the Astor Place riots as a moment where Shakespeare suddenly became in America something for the highbrow. And up until then, it wasn't. And, you know, people, I think everybody knew these plays, had them memorized. They say like the during the gold rush that like the the miners would entertain themselves by putting on performances of Shakespeare together, like out. Uh, you know, in the West and that um, people, you know, up until then Americans like that, they look to Shakespeare as kind of this like scrappy, wild literary hero. And that's why they were doing a lot of Shakespeare on the Bowery, but then the riots suddenly politicized Shakespeare and it became associated just with like, British aristocracy. And so basically, like from this point on, the populist Americans started to snub their nose at Shakespeare. Let's put the Bowery Boys up on the board. Done. Definitely. And as part of the Bowery Boys, I also want to put someone by the name of Ned Buntline. Now, Buntline was a major instigator the night of the riot. He was a dime novel author and heavily associated with the Bowery Boys. I'm not sure he was an actual Bowery Boy, but he definitely was associated. He even wrote plays that were put on uh, up on the Bowery that uh, kind of made the Bowery Boys and the working class um, the stars, essentially. And... uh, While the play was going on inside, outside, Ned, in an effort to exploit the class undertones of the event, began shouting, quote, you can't go in there without kid gloves on. I paid for a ticket and they wouldn't let me in because I didn't have kid gloves and a white vest. Damn them. So he's getting the crowd riled up outside. And the crowd outside consisted of both working class native born New Yorkers and Irish immigrant New Yorkers. Now, those two groups were usually at odds, but at this particular event, they found common ground in in their appreciation for Forrest and their disdain for the elite McGreedy. So it's literally the first time they're getting along. We can all unite over the hatred of the British at this point. (laughs) And Edwin Forrest was not present though neither was McCready because apparently they fin- he finished the performance in pantomime and was out by 9:15 it's like the shortest production of macbeth ever it seemed to me that forrest and McGreedy were having this kind of you know in this hostility that was sort of a PR game between them. You know, I think things escalated over the years in terms of this rivalry and then apparently the day that McCready came to town to do his final his final tour uh-huh. in which he was going to perform this Macbeth. Apparently the day he landed was the day that Ned Forrest got the uh, verdict for his own divorce against his British wife oh, who scandal. had cheated on him. Yikes. Oh boy. And the judge said he ruled in favor of the wife of the British wife. And so it feels like Ned Forrest had like a big trigger at this moment. <laughs> Should we put Mrs. Forrest on the board? <laughs> I love that. I, I would say maybe the divorce. We could put divorce up on the divorce. Board. Yes. Yes. It would be awesome to blame divorce. And let's talk about McGreedy. There's not a lot that 
I f- you could really find to point a finger at him. He gets mistaken for the aristocracy, I think, mostly just because there's like not a lot of British people around, you know, like uh, I think that mostly like there's no British people to really blame. So even though he's just an actor uh-huh. and probably not rich at all. And actors still today, as we know, are like one step above prostitution. <laughs> so like, but he becomes this symbol because he's like putting on costumes. So people are like, oh, he is representing the, the British aristocracy, even though he's like so far from any kind of aristocracy. Now, I also think that we should put the owners of the Astor Place Opera House up on the board. I was, I did a little bit of research and all I found was that it was built by, quote, wealthy New Yorkers to bring opera to the city. According to Wikipedia, yeah, the theater was built with the intention of attracting only the, be- quote, the best patrons, the uppertons of New York society. <laughs> it was expected that an opera house would be uh, a substitute for a general drawing room, a refined attraction which the ill-mannered would not be likely to frequent and around which the higher classes might gather for easier interchange of courtesies and for the closer view which aids the candidacy of acquaintance. (laughs) In pursuit of this agenda, the theater was created with the comfort of upper classes in mind. Benches, normal seating in theater at the time was replaced by upholstered seats available only by subscription. Um, On the other hand, 500 general admission patrons were uh, relegated to the benches of the cock loft. So this is what you were talking about uh, (laughs) uptown. And it was only reachable by a narrow stairway and otherwise isolated from the the gentry below. By the way, the the theater was conceived by impresario Edward Fry, brother of composer Henry, William Henry Fry, who managed the opera house. We need to put the, the curse on the board. Yes, I do. Shakespeare or the, the witches. I think the Scottish curse really needs to go up on the board for all the reasons that you explained, Jacqueline. I also want to put up on the board this British versus American rivalry. Right, anti-British sentiment. At the time, the British were very much disliked by a lot of the immigrants that were in New York City at the time. This has a lot to do with the Revolutionary War, and it has a lot to do with the potato famine, which the the Irish had to flee because of the British aristocracy. We're only like a generation, I guess like a generation and a half, 70-ish years after the revolution. So I want to put two more things up on the board. One of them is the militia. They were the ones that were called upon and they were brought in, and they're the ones who had guns as well. You know, the, the people in the crowd... Probably uh, most of them had knives and were willing to fight, but uh, not a lot of them had actual guns. I thought this was really interesting. The militia that they called upon, which was the 7th New York militia, they, they were waiting in Washington Square Park, and then they're the ones who were brought in by the police when things got out of hand. This militia was also known as, quote, the Blue Bloods, and due to the disproportionate number of its members who were part of New York City's social elite. So they later fought in the Civil War in 1861, and this is how they were described then. The 7th New York was self-defined elite regiment composed of sons of New York's wealthy upper crust. They went to war well-supplied with silk-cushioned camp stools and carrying box, box lunches from Delmonico's. 
That's crazy. I think there was just like so little structure that everything was basically just kind of different, like varying levels of gangs. Like the Bowery Boys were their own fraternity as part of a mix of other fraternities that fought against each other unless they had a united cause that was the British. And then like the police were slightly uh, like given a little bit more authority than those gangs, but were just their own fraternity. And I think around this time, I think it was like the first time that the police showed up in uniform and like the Bowery boys like thought that was so hilarious that they basically like ran them out of town. Like, because suddenly like that gang of police got a uniform, Mm. like a team sport (laughs) uniform. And then like the militia were like slightly, you know, better off than the police and they were their own fraternity gang, you know? So I think everybody was just kind of like pulling their various muscle and nobody really, it was all just class warfare, really. That's the last thing I wanted to put up there was this class disparity. And this is uh, according to history.com. How do you refer to the rich and famous? These days you might call them wealthy or powerful uh the the wealthier powerful person a one percenter or a member of the elite but in the 1840s you would have called them the upper tens instead a pithy term that sparked outrage among amongst the rich and poor new yorkers during the 19th century the obsession with the upper tens comings goings and acquisitions was the flip side of the era's extreme poverty new york's population doubled every decade between 18 the 1800s and 1880 taxing the city's scant social system and consigning immigrants and the working poor to filthy overcrowded tenements what are we calling it uh class disparities okay yeah 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 sure any last minute additions to the board here the fashion industry. <laughs> I mean, what Jacqueline said was that, you know, the police got new outfits and that really caused a stir. Right. And these these actors were in costumes that then made the, the populace believe that they were the elite, but were just like lowly little actors. Yeah. And, and you, were... know, you could dress aristocratically, you know, br- look British. Oh, and the gloves. Yeah, you but know? you're huffing nitrous oxide gloves. on the side. Uh, we're putting the fashion industry. And, and the dress code? Hello? Mm-hmm. There was a dress, dress code. Codes. I mean, dress codes are often problematic. What about this guy, Isaiah Rinders, who I think is like the... Uh, you talked about Ned Buntline, and I think Ned Buntline was kind of like the, the henchman to Isaiah Rinders, who was the Tammany Hall mob boss, and he was like out to... Um, embarrass the new mayor. Oh, interesting. Who, the new mayor who was part of the Whig party, which I don't, I can't speak a lot to, but I think was like part of this disparity, you know, and like the the mayor called the militia. Mm. The mayor kind of like made the militia wait and hang out in Washington Square. And right. so like, I feel like Isaiah Rinders was the... um like on the Bowery Boy Ned Forrest side, um, but he was be, he was more of a political opportunist. It seems yeah, like. and yeah, and political leader, and kind of like knew how to manipulate. Like right. he was yes. he was the one who made sure that there was pamphlets that went around before the performance that said, um, "Like shall Americans or English rule this city?" Mm. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey everyone, let's just pause for a second and take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. It's really important for us so that we can keep our mics on and continue doing this podcast. Here's a recent review. This one's from Kells S. And they say, Love this podcast, entertaining and informing. Every Tuesday morning, Rebecca's voice is the first I hear, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Keep it up. Well, what an honor to be the first voice you hear on your Tuesday mornings. I can't, I honestly, I seriously, I really, I can't believe it. Thank you so much. Now back to our show. All right, so I'm going to read through if, if there's no, no yeah. more. Okay. So this is the Astro Place riot, in case anyone forgot already. Um, <laughs> and who's to blame? Here's up, who's up on the board. Edwin Forrest, the Bowery Boys, Ned Buntline, Divorce, <laughs> William Charles McCready, William Edward Fry, who is in charge of the uh, Astro Place uh, um, Opera House, uh, the Scottish Curse, Anti-British sentiment, militia, class disparities, dress codes, or Isaiah Rinders. That's a lot. Yeah. That a lot. I, and, and I was almost even going to say we should add the aristocracy up there. But, well, but British aristocracy? No, the American aristocracy. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
So why don't we put the American the Uppertons? Up? Uppertons. That's great. I this might be a bit controversial. It might be too early. Okay. But I, I feel like I want to take those the two actors off the board. Interesting. You want to take Forrest? I definitely McCready. He's he should be. Yeah, the McCready. McCready didn't know what was up. He was just eating his haggis. I yeah. I, I, I mean, agree. in all fairness, I, I think taking the yeah. two actors off the board is they they were they were excuses for um, a deeper issue that was already sim- simmering beneath the surface. So people just yeah. saw that and used that to um, exploit that, to have a riot that was probably bound to happen one way or the other. Ned Forrest had no idea what was going on. You know, like, I think he, like, rabble-roused. He was just, like, just an actor who was like, we don't like British people. You know, like, I'm a better actor. And I think they were just kind of doing it in sport. And then it became this huge political symbol. Now, if we were uh, figuring out who's to blame for maybe overacting, yes, or, <laughs> yes, he might stay up longer. He would be up there. Like we'd crucify him. It would be between him and Shia LaBeouf who gets the slap <laughs> and who gets put in jail. And I think that we can kind of put together the Bowery Boys and Ned Buntline. Even though he wasn't technically a Bowery Boy, I feel like, you know, tell me who you're friends with and I'll tell you who you're with, who, how you are. Isn't that the same? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Never heard. I think my mom used to say that to me so that I, I wouldn't hang out with like, you know, troublemakers. <laughs> Is yeah. Buntline absorbed too with Isaiah Rinders? Because I think I, like Buntline... I think did his sort of like journal, like yellow journalism, dirty work. Mm. Oh, really? Buntline. I feel like they Rinders. were all connected. Like I feel like Rinders and Buntline got the Bowery Boys really worked up. Yeah, and and exactly. So I so well. So do you think that it should be more on them than on the Bowery Boys? I feel I like. Think- yeah, I think there's a separation between Rinders and Buntline and the Bowery Boys, who okay. are like a, a gang, you know? Okay. Okay, so we're not absorbing Buntline into yeah. the Bowery Boys. But we could absorb Rinders and Buntline together, maybe. Okay. Okay, and Rinders was kind of the the leader of all the gangs, in a way. Yes, and I just came across this that I forgot. Rinders handed out Buntline flyers and handed out hundreds of free tickets to the Bowery Boys for the Astor Place performance of Macbeth and maps as to where they should deploy. Oh, wow. Interesting. So he's a real instigator. I'm also yeah. seeing here that they tried to set the theater on fire. Oh, yeah. It might have been the there was a fire that was set in the, the storage room that they kept locking people when the police would arrest the people in the in the theater. They put them down in a storage room. And apparently the people that were in the storage room start, tried to start a fire. Uh, but the police put out the fire. And during this whole thing, McCready is still performing Macbeth. And God bless. I mean, pointing to the police where they are so that they can then take him down. Like, I want to see this production. A <laughs> testament to his commitment to his craft. Do we? Didn't we have some sort of award that we were doing? It was the big clap. The Should big clap. McCready, right. the big clap. I think so. I think he's a contender. He he deserves it, and you know that's why he does it. He does it for the clap. McCready, you're getting the big clap. <laughs> so we've got the Bowery Boys. Thank you, Chris. The Bowery Boys, Divorce, Edward Fry, The Scottish Curse, British Sentiment, Militia, 
uh, which who had guns, class disparities, dress code, a.k.a. fashion industry, renders, uh, and the Uppertons, American aristocracy. I mean, I want to keep the curse in there because it's like, is it all comes down to, is it faded or is it free will? <laughs> I think divorce uh, can get crossed off because if, if, if Edwin Forrest is out, I think his wife sure. <laughs> divorcing him should be out. <laughs> it's fair. Okay. Now, controversially, uh, I think we can remove the Bowery Boys and the militia because they neither were at the top of the ladder. They, if anything, were just sort of the masses. Um, and I think there were people in leadership roles who are more, more culpable. Oh, I agree. Interesting. Okay. It does feel like the, the, the boys were used um, to fuel other, other people's like uh, agendas a little bit. Not that they weren't culpable, not that they didn't show up and not that they didn't do their part, right? But they were a little bit orchestrated by others. Yeah, it's true. And it kind of makes you think about why these gangs were formed to begin with. You have a very small plot of land. You have a exponentially growing populace and there's just not enough resources. There's not enough space and fights are inevitable. And so you, you have to choose sides for survival. And so, um, you know, of course there's, it's, it runs deeper than that. And there's, uh, you know, uh, there's all kinds of classism and racism involved and stuff like that. But, um, you, you know, when, when somebody's hard up and they have no one else to turn to, they see an opportunity with a group of like-minded people and they, you know, Hey, a gang could make sense for me. I could put food on my table. I could have a sense of, uh, sense of place. And, you know, so I, I, I kind of am, I'm, I'm kind of down with, uh, getting rid of the Bowery boys as being culpable. Okay. I, yeah, I, I'm 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 with you. I think Let's that like, that. yeah. And I also think that part of it, like I just, you know, it's a riot over theater, which isn't still, we must remember. <laughs> it's hard to pick Bravo, up. bravo. And, but I do think like this is where it's like a shame that after this, Shakespeare was then sort of forfeited to the aristocracy because I think also like the Bowery Boys were the main uh, audience members of the Bowery Theater. And they weren't like, you know, really watching this play about vengeance and bloodshed and like getting roused up and like hearing Macbeth say things like, you know, what drugs will scourge us of the English. And so I just feel like they got all the messaging and the only thing they're guilty of, the only thing they're guilty of is being a good audience is loving the word yeah. <laughs> <laughs> loving the word um okay so we'll get rid of the bowery boys and and at the same time the militia i think can get bounced too yeah they had the guns but um i'm not sure that we want to blame the militia for this do we i don't uh what do you well, think because they tri- they were they did consist of the upper class yeah i mean it's tricky because the militia they fired the shots um yeah, I think we got to keep the militia up okay. there. But I do think we can take out Edward Fry, who was the kind of manager of the yeah. theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think him. we can take him off. I have a suggestion. Yeah. Can we consolidate militia class disparities into the Uppertons? I think they can signify the class disparity because mm. I, I, I do think they were the ones who had the most to lose. Um, okay. So now, so we have left is the Scottish curse. I got nervous that I Scottish play the Scottish play right Um, the Scottish play curse Um, anti-British sentiment sentiment uh, dress codes 
Isaiah Rinders and Buntline, and then the Uppertons. Rinders and Buntline. Those guys seem like jerks, huh? I mean, I always want to blame the Uppertons, but I think this gets complicated because, you know, these leaders of Tammany Hall, even though they're kind of leading us into the Democratic Party, like they they were a mob, you know, and they knew they knew they were like the face of the people, but it was like so manipulative and so in the name of power. And they knew that they could manipulate uh, a riot mm. and they knew that they had the Bowery boys and the other gangs of the five points in their pocket. And like the Bowery boys did instigate, you know, it's like they, they did yeah. cause the round. Like, I think we can cut the Scottish curse. Okay. I, I have an idea of what I think we should do, but I don't okay. know if anyone's going to agree. Tell I think us. we should send um, the two big boys. Uh, what were their names? The Renders and Renders and Buntline to jail, and we should give the dress code the big slap. Wow! And I, lo- you know, why I love that because the dress code really it, it embodies Uppertons, mm-hmm. and th- this is like the reason that they wanted it. They they want they put the dress code in place so that t- to weed out the quote unquote riffraff. And it was Buntline who who shouted who kind of like like shouted that that thing into the, the crowd they right won't of let like us go in gloves they won't let us go in there to me there's nothing more detestable than people who uh, who try and make an opportunity out of lives being lost and and try and try to use use riots and passions and and political for their own political interest you know what right I mean? and try to be the face of the people and the and the oppressed right, you know, but it's right. all just their own manipulations right. yeah i couldn't agree with you more i think it's settled dress code you're getting the big slap renders and buntline you're going to the alarmist jail we're gonna we're gonna throw the curse on you yeah don't so, say it tomorrow Jacqueline, tomorrow and do tomorrow you, do you have a monologue prepared for the podcast or i think we could all can we all um try and piece together the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow what do you remember of that okay, i remember I, probably I think that's macbeth ready yes Tomorrow, 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 creeps into this, this petty, petty pace from day to day, 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 day to the from last, the last syllable of recorded, recorded time. time. And, and all these yesterdays, our yesterdays, all our yesterdays have Chris, lighted you know, fools the pe- way to dusty death. Out, 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 damn spot. Brief candle. Out, out, brief candle. Rate, rate, life the life is but rate, rate <laughs> the podcast. <laughs> After the riots, the opera house was known as Massacre Opera House, a reputation it would not survive. The elite would have its new opera house at the Academy of Music by Union Square, away from the working class area of the Bowery while the former opera house would close, later housing the New York Mercantile Library. According to Nigel Cliff, in the Shakespeare riots, the riots furthered the process of class alienation and segregation in New York City and America. As part of that process, the entertainment world separated into, quote, respectable and, quote, working class orbits. 
As professional actors gravitated to respectable theaters and vaudeville houses, responded by mounting skits on, quote, serious Shakespeare, Shakespeare was gradually removed from popular culture into a new category of highbrow entertainment. Charles McCready would never act in America again. Vote for who you think is to blame by going to thealarmistpodcast.com. Follow us at the Alarmist the on Twitter, at the Alarmist Podcast on Instagram, or email us at thealarmistpodcast at gmail.com. Tune in next week. We'll be talking about the death of Marilyn Monroe. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.